0: Welcome to the Radical Brilliance Podcast with Arjuna Arda and brilliant guests from around the world who are contributing to the evolution of humanity. Today's guest is Forrest Landry, who's going to talk to us about enabling creativity. So here's your host Arjuna Arda.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Radical Brilliance podcast. Today's interview is with Forrest Landry, who you may or may not have heard of. He he has written books, but they are privately published. Forrest is one of the really strong influences on and friends of Daniel Schmachtenberger, who, as you know, is a frequent guest on this podcast. Forrest has some incredible perspectives on... You know, some people, they, they speak as though they're like an alien who's come down, and they, they, they speak with very little familiarity with the ways of the world. They speak almost as like you would see the human condition from the outside. And this is an interesting thing, because... Um, Have you ever thought about it, you know, that um, we are experiencing life from within this animal, which is extremely subject to emotions, contractions. Its actions and speech are often influenced by emotion and contraction, but also by fixated beliefs or points of view of this thing is true and that's not true. And all of that is really filtering. It's filtering through an animal. Just like if you suddenly got identified, if you suddenly found yourself identified with or or incarnate inside a dog. And now, you know, you're experiencing life as a dog and you notice, wow, suddenly I want to pee on a tree or now I want to start barking, you know, because somebody's walking up the driveway. And you'd notice all this strange stuff and go, I guess this is just because I'm experiencing life through the lens of a dog. See if you can actually have that same perspective on experiencing life through the perspective of a human. And how much of our perceptions are governed by emotion, by fear, by desire, by craving, by addiction, and by limited, um, rigid perspectives. So it's, it's very rare to meet someone who's not doing that. It's rare to meet someone who is really seeing things um, outside of the, the box of the human perspective. And, and Forrest Landry, today's guest, is someone like that. So I want to really um, welcome you strongly to this podcast. Uh, listen carefully. This is a mind that is relatively unfettered compared to almost anyone else I've, I, I can think of. So you'll, you'll get some really fresh perspectives on how it's possible to be in a human body without being cramped down within the, within the concerns of the human perspective. Hey, Forrest, thank you so much for sitting down with me. We've already actually, just prior to pressing the record button, we've already just gone off onto incredibly deep directions uh, in a few, just in a short space of time. So I'm really excited to go deeper. Fabulous. Looking
2: forward to continuing.
1: So I think the place I'd love to start is where we would, what we were just talking about before we finally got to press the record button. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is um, really central to what radical brilliance is about is distinguishing between what I call horizontal and vertical thoughts, right? Which you, you just use that, spontaneously use that same term. In other words, thoughts that are repeating, the re- repetitions of what you heard before, and thoughts that are somehow mysterious, uh, at least subjectively, <laughs> uh, subjectively, seem to be generated out of a sort of stillness or an emptiness mm-hmm. and i've certainly got some you know a lot of uh research that i, that I want to share with you about that but i'd love to just go back to to the distinction you were making between those two and and we've, we started to talk about not only not only thoughts that are purely repetitive like someone you know someone hears a pop song and then drives down the freeway and hums the pop song they're clearly not making music mm-hmm. they're remembering music they've made mm-hmm. right and and then we the, the difference would be the example we just talked about before was George Harrison picking up the car and go picking up the guitar and going da 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 and then writing down the notes da, da 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 here comes the here comes here comes the sun you know that's actually he's writing a melody that's no one's ever heard before but you made the great point mm-hmm. that that wasn't a kid picking up a guitar for the first time that yeah. time that was george harrison in 1970 he'd already been with the beatles for 10 years he'd yeah. had a he had the 10,000 hours
2: he had less. enormous levels of embodied skill
1: yes yeah.
2: yeah and so in effect the you know we were asking you know what are the what are the conditions that create the capacity for creative thinking yeah and so we were talking about creativity as a kind of transformation where I, I take these, uh, these these total life experiences, you know, all the things I've heard, all the things that I've that I've learned about how to translate uh, feelings into notes, um, how to have a melody that other people can play, um, how to, in a sense, think about uh, what is going to sound good, uh, what's going to record well, what kind of things are are actually going to be evocative to an audience, and so. You know, there's, there's an enormous number of different factors that, that are unconscious but, but are still in the person. And so, in effect, the, the, the creative act is, is something that essentially is drawing on this, this sort of holistic field. There's kind of like a, 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 a generative, nurturative capacity. And so, the level of transformation that is going on from whatever those capacities are that into um, something which is, um, you know, a novel experience. Um, so in one sense, we could we can measure the level of novelty, and we could say, well, that novelty is is certainly more than zero. The measure has gone from zero to some positive value. And so we can say, yes, there's something new there. But at the same time, without those generative conditions, we wouldn't have the newness. Right. So uh, the, the notion of creation from nothing is actually not clear.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's,
2: it's conflicted because we're only looking at the newness mm-hmm. without looking at the generative conditions.
1: So the you know what 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 radical brilliance is all about and mm-hmm. i'm going to i know you've not had a chance to look at it yet so i'm going to give you a copy today but what radical brilliance is all about is actually the 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 right soil mm-hmm. for this to happen in other words basically you know what's the difference between a day when you wake up and just go about your mechanical tasks and a day when you write an incredible song that touches the hearts of people, right? Mm-hmm. What's the difference between those two days? So mm-hmm. in other words, what you know, it would come down to well what did you put in your smoothie that morning, you know,
2: right? Well it it it, it that, that question's a fascinating question and I actually spent a lot of time thinking about that question in my own life because yeah. obviously I want to create the generative conditions that'll help me to do more creative you work. You and me, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 I can tell you kind of the things that I've I've noticed have correlational relationship.
1: And I'll be glad to reciprocate. Yeah. yeah. This is a, this is a, a an exploration. We've obviously both been very intent on very intent on. Yeah.
2: And so um, one one of the things that I notice is that I definitely am more creative in the morning. Definitely. Um,
1: and what time of the morning? Uh,
2: usually from right when I get up, like what, like what, the instant I I, what I time regain. Is that? Uh, it varies from about seven thirty ish to around eight thirty ish. Right.
1: Well, I've got pretty a, I've regularly. Got, I've got a little insight to throw in about that in a minute, but uh-huh. please carry
2: on. Yeah. Anyways, the, um, the the upshot is is that, you know, when I when I first wake up, I'm I'm having creative thoughts. Yeah. And um, so you know, from whatever space of dreaming or, or sleeping that I was in, um, if the if the conditions are right from previous days, maybe the night before or whatever that, that I wake up with a lot of inspired ideas. Yeah. And so the the first thing I try to do when I'm waking up is to is to, you know, really explore those and to try to keep track of them. Because mm. the thing is is that usually there might be several different topics that have come up mm. in that in that initial exploration. So the next thing I do is is I, I get up out of bed, I do the bare minimum necessary to get me to the computer, mm. right? So if I need to get dressed, I'll get dressed. Um, but I will sit down and I will try to at least get the highlights mm-hmm. of, of what the topics are. Because mm. if I explore one of those topics deeply, I'll forget the other topics. Mm. And that usually represents an actual profound loss. Mm-hmm. So the first the first thing is to is to try to get as much coverage as I can. Mm-hmm. Then I will explore deeply into each one in succession, trying to make sure that I do it fairly evenly. I don't – like I might not be able to go completely deeply in the first one. I might only be able to go halfway. Mm-hmm. But then I'll go halfway with the second one and halfway with the third. And then I will go back and I'll fill in the rest of the details as much as I have time for. Got
3: it.
2: Yeah. Um, the real days that are problematic are when I don't have enough time to write down these notes. Mm. Um, so if, say I've got a meeting at 9 o'clock. That is actually a real hazard in my life. Right. So um, for the most part, I try to schedule my time such that I don't have any things happening before 11, mm-hmm. uh, which is usually about the time that I'm done. Like, I might finish my, my notes at around 10 or 10.30, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to want to implement something. I'm probably going to want to write code, or I'm going to want to, you know, like actually turn one of those into an essay or send some emails or something.
1: Write code means you're a programmer?
2: I am a programmer. Yeah. 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 I'm definitely a developer. So mm-hmm. um, I write music, I write books, and I write code.
1: Yeah, well, can I just throw, throw a couple of... Uh, sure, please. Lob a couple of balls back your way on the tennis court here? So one thing um, that we've explored in, in Radical Brilliance, and I work with a team of other people in the Radical Brilliance Project, is actually exploring the time of day that you go to sleep and the time of day you wake up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the interesting uh, observations about this is... Um, you know we're Homo sapiens, right? So our species has been around for two hundred and fifty-nine, two hundred sixty thousand years, uh, but but various other kinds of human, you know, is about two million years, right? Well, out of that, either two hundred and fifty thousand or two million years, for all but the last hundred, everybody was obliged to be in synchrony with circadian rhythms, right? So the last 100 years, literally, I mean, it was 1920 that electricity was introduced into domestic homes, you know. The last 100 years, we've had the possibility to uh, stay up after dark, right? But prior to 100 years ago, most people, except very, very very rich you know, royalty, most people were obliged to have all of their uh, cooking, eating and washing dishes finished before dark, because you can't do that in the dark. Then maybe you can sit around a candle. But remember, candles were made from beeswax. That, you know, they, were, they were a precious commodity. So you've just had your food. Probably, you know, that would have been in the wintertime. That would have been before 5 p.m., you know. Then how long can you lay around, you know, with a full belly and it's dark before you fall asleep? Well, if you fall asleep, as indigenous people still do, an hour or two after dark, you're going to wake up long before the dawn, inevitably. And so this is what happens. My wife was just in the Amazon there are indigenous people there, they wake up at like two or three in the morning because they've gone to bed so early. So then you've got this time before the dawn. And this is what we've been doing for most of our development is is we've had this time before the dawn. And, and so I've adjusted my life to reclaim that. Mm. I, I, wake, I wake up about 4.30. This time of year, it can be a little later, but I make sure it's definitely a full hour before the dawn. Mm. So I wake up in this darkness, which is amazing because, you know, Obviously there's not much traffic at that time. You know, you, you can just feel that you can feel that you're surrounded by sleeping bodies everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can actually tiptoe through this, being careful not to disturb it, you can tiptoe through this stillness. What I like to do is I like to sit, you know, I, I sit to, to kind of recapture that depth of the night. Because mm-hmm. in the night you go into dreamless sleep, which is in a deep delta. Well, you can recapture that now with a little alpha 2 in there as well. So you can now have alert stillness. Mm -hmm. And it's out of that stillness then, as the sun's coming up, it's amazing. Because when you get used to this, you realize that when the sun pokes up above the horizon, or even a little before... If, uh, it, I live in a forest you know so you can hear there's suddenly this. everything wakes up the, you know in the summertime the birds get active squirrels wake everybody gets busy it's a whole like marketplace starts going not the humans necessarily but all of the rest of the mammals are just all they're all getting busy right so at that time there's an energy right the sun's coming up everything comes alive if you've got a pen in your hand and you're prepared whoa you can really mm. you can really do some incredible harvesting right there mm. so I do like when the sun rises, I'm usually doing automatic writing for like 15, 30 minutes, you okay. know? Um, or sometimes I just switch to like colored pens like you've got here, I'll just start drawing because maybe maybe what's coming through is more diagrammatic than, than, than actual sequence mm-hmm. of words. I might even sing it or, you know, sometimes I take a really fast walk with a voice recorder because it comes out better that way. What I've noticed from that time, sorry, I'm hogging the mic a bit here, but what I've noticed from that time of the morning operating that way, is you can actually start almost like channeling thoughts in the mind of God. You know, you're, mm-hmm. not, you're, not, you're not in your logical j- 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 mind. You're actually just letting things flow through you that sometimes you don't even understand. You know, mm-hmm. It's like I have the experience that time in the morning that I'm listening to right. what's being said more than actually saying it. I'm like, where did that come from? You know? So that's just one little uh, thing I wanted to, to... Well, there were a couple of pieces I wanted to add. One is, one is waking up before the dawn seems mm-hmm. to make a big difference. And the second piece was uh, about this silent sitting Mm. before actually writing. What are your thoughts about
2: that? Well, I think both of those are actually uh, pretty interesting. Mm. Um, I had literally just a couple days ago thought to, because I had been the night owl, so Mm. going to bed late. Mm. um, But I was still waking up at about the same time, so I wasn't getting as much sleep.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And I find that uh, I still get some creative process as a result. Um, but if I do that too many nights in a row, then it diminishes because yeah. I'm too tired yeah,
3: sure.
2: So um, what, I, what I have noticed though is, is that the stillness aspect is important
3: yeah.
2: um, So I do uh, move into a stillness uh, you know, I, I will spend some time, um, hopefully every day, where I'm, I'm actually doing a kind of meditation So it's like a, uh, I, I will want to just basically come into a place where I'm, I'm literally not thinking and 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 rest there for a while really just repose in that um, I think the quality that you're speaking to is is the is the truly profound deep listening piece yeah um, I experience it as a kind of um, um, feeling as like I, I move out of thinking and I move into the totality of sensing the totality of feeling so it's not just listening with my head it's or with my ears it's 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 listening with my whole body mm-hmm. and so um that capacity, developing that capacity to, to be able to receive without judgment, to be able to receive without um, any kind of filtering going on, without uh, trying to precondition,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, is very much the case, uh, you know, part of, part of the mastery of the process, essentially.
3: Great.
2: So, um, in effect, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm hearing in the way that you're describing it is, is that, uh, you know, if we, if we go more into the circadian rhythm, that uh, we could build more of that nurturing ground from which to have creative process. Yeah, for
3: sure. So,
2: I, in that sense, I'm I'm actually uh, interested in exploring that a little more because of your, uh, because of your description. Um, usually, when I, when I stay up late, it's partly because I want to have, um, the silence. I want to I want to know that everyone else is asleep. Yeah, yeah. Know for sure that I'm not going to be bothered, um, because a lot of the work that I do requires long, uninterrupted periods of time. Yeah. And so if I, the, the, the hazard with the morning for me that I've been experiencing, I think what you're describing is actually kind of a corrective, is that if I start a project at say 11, I'm really nervous about doing that because I'm probably going to get interrupted at noon Yeah. and I might need four hours in order to do what I need to do. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there'll be a lot of times I won't start a project because I'm worried that I'm going to get interrupted and yeah. that creates a kind of conflict. Got it. Yeah. Um, Whereas if I start the project at, say, 10 at night,
1: hmm.
2: I know I'm not going to get bothered, and therefore no. I'm going to be able to work on it until basically it's done. And at that point, I'm usually exhausted and want to go straight to bed.
1: Well, let me offer you the possibility of 5 a.m. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, I, I, as you're describing it, I'm thinking about that, and, and I'm, I'm saying, you know, this is, this is definitely worth exploring. I haven't tried it that way, but I know several people who Uh, Are on that kind of cycle, you know, really early, really early, right? Going to bed early and waking up really early. And um, I I did recently make the commitment to try to go to bed at like nine or ten,
1: yeah,
2: uh, which is still considerably later than what you're describing. Um, I go
1: to bed. I mean, nice thing is I've got a very cuddly wife Uh who, uh, and we just have, we've worked hard to we're both of us not we're both of us pretty allergic to mediocrity Mm. so we've created an ecstatic marriage i mean Mm. like like we're constantly like you know some people go to like therapy and stuff to fix problems we're 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 contemplating how it's already amazing how could we make it even better like Mm. you know we work on our marriage to just so uh, because i've got such a such a very beautiful marriage uh, going to bed early is very really nice because we both do that. So we'd really love, you know, we, we will often get into bed 7.30 or 8. And just hang, hang out and talk and, you know, but we look forward to that time. So that's a big uh, incentive.
0: If you're enjoying this podcast with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might also enjoy our eight-week online group coaching program. It's an opportunity to go deep and get stable in practices that enhance your own brilliance. We only take 20 participants at a time, so in a small and intimate group, you can go through the whole radical brilliance cycle you'll have an accountability partner in another brilliant aspirant from somewhere around the world. The eight-week coaching program involves eight one-hour webinars with Arjuna Arda and a group of other Radical Brilliance coaches. You'll also receive one 30-minute coaching session with your own personal coach every week and one 90-minute coaching session with Arjuna himself. It's the ideal opportunity to drop deep into yourself, into the source of your own creativity, and to get support for an entire eight weeks of mining your own Radical Brilliance and bringing it forth into a project or creation that can truly serve the future of humanity. Find out more at RadicalBrilliance.com and click on the Programs tab.
2: that's beautiful
1: I, I wanted to actually because we've got limited time you know, I wanted to segue a little bit into a, a distinction I'd like to ask you about which is you know we, we talked before the, before we started recording about the, the, the time in which we're living it's 2018 and you know we don't need to we don't need everyone knows by now we don't need to make a long list of all the seemingly unresolvable challenges that we face collectively which means, for the first time, as far as we know, in recorded history, um, the f- our fate and the fate of many other creatures is not is not guaranteed anymore. We can't assume that we can bequeath something to our grandchildren and it'll, everything will be the same like you could in previous generations. Everything's up in the air. And that's a pretty precarious thing. We just made the comparison together to, you know, standing standing on the... The deck of the titanic and mm-hmm. seeing the um, the iceberg in the distance so when we when we are awake and responsible
3: mm-hmm.
1: to the time that we're living in i think it's useful to make a distinction between creativity and brilliance as a sort of self-absorbed thing i enjoy doing mm-hmm. and what I would call, what I use the word brilliance, which I make distinct from genius or creativity, because by brilliance, because the word brilliant means to shine, mm-hmm. you know, it, it shines out and the light, the light of something that's brilliant will light up other things. So I, I use that word to mean this is creativity or genius, but specifically radiating light, mm-hmm. clear light that lights up everything else. So. Yeah. In that sense, I mean, obviously this is a little arguable, but I mean, I, I could give the example. Well, here's a probably non-arguable thing is Emmeline Pankhurst was brilliant, right? Because we can't, I think today we can't see any downside to women having the vote. There's no there's no negative consequence of that. It's a purely good thing. I agree. I was going to say Albert Einstein, but of course, although Albert Einstein did advance our understanding of, of um Many things. Uh, it also his findings also got used to make the bomb. So that yeah. wasn't such a great thing. But um all, all these things, of course, are arguable. But I would say it's not such a great thing. So, but what I mean by brilliance is creativity that has a generative, generous, contributing aspect to it. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to just because um, I, I notice particularly I interview sometimes very prestigious academics. You know who've you know the. Dean of this or whatever, mm-hmm. and you know they're very very well respected. But sometimes this kind of uh, academic uh, brilliance or academic you know genius or something can become quite. It 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 caters to a very small number of people.
2: Ask who it serves.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Who,
2: who does it, who who do you serve?
1: Yeah. Exactly.
3: And
2: and so if you're if you're an academic and you're looking to create prestige, yeah, it's serving you. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, you might through prestige
3: yeah.
2: uh, do services for others, but if their first action is to create prestige yeah. in order to serve others, then in effect the prestige consumes a lot of the bandwidth.
1: Well, yeah, and, and so uh, so prestige is one thing. What I was thinking more is like, I mean, there's art for art's sake, or there's kind of philosophy for philosophy's sake. So somebody mm-hmm. could somebody could be a really great painter right. and, and, and be in their studio painting And maybe they, you know, maybe then they sell the painting to somebody. But, you know, and maybe it's beautiful, but did it actually alleviate suffering? You know, did it actually advance the quality of life for people? So, you know, a really great example of that is Damien Hirst, who I must admit I'm a bit of a Philistine because I don't quite get it, you know, who preserves a pig in ethanol or something, you know. and, and, And that's art. I think that's even in the Tate Gallery.
2: Well I, I, I first of all I'm, I'm not a great fan of modern art I, okay. so I, you know I, I look at those kinds of things and I, and, I, and I basically ask the question uh, what is the meaning of the process and by that I'm actually implying several things I'm, one of them is, is that meaning is a shared thing so uh, part of the discernment that I'm that I'm thinking about and I think you're, you're you're trying to get to as well is 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 the art that I'm creating meaningful for the people that are perceiving it yeah. or that are interacting with it? Is there something in the meaningfulness itself that is actually beneficial?
1: Yeah, so it would be interesting if we could zero in on the, on the meaning of the mm-hmm. word meaningful and the meaning of the word beneficial.
2: Well, this is where we get into philosophy. Yeah, well, let's right? do So, it. Let's so on, on one hand, for, for talking about the meaning of meaning, we actually have to get into a topic called metaphysics. Yeah. To talk about beneficial, we have to get into a topic called ethics. Right. So um, in the metaphysics, what we're basically saying is, is that um, meaning can I
1: interrupt you a second? Sure. Sorry, I just I feel this would be germane before you get going. Okay. So this is just what I want to ask you. Do you have children? No. Um,
2: and I did that specifically because I didn't ever want there to be a conflict of interest between the work that I would be doing for my own family versus the work that I would be doing for the world. All
1: right. That's a good. That's a good distinction. I've. I've. Um, yeah. So. So let me give you an example where, in my case, as a father, but I'm sure you can find parallels. You know. If my, if one of my children's life was in danger, yeah. I mean, a really good example would be you're sitting in a, you know, you're sitting in one of those restaurants that has outdoor seating. And this happens sometimes and the child gets out of the enclosed area and starts walking towards a, a road with traffic.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: In that moment, it's a very important moment because in that moment, something takes over. You, you know what to do. Right that any indecision any cerebral process is gone you know what to do right. the example i sometimes give is i used to i went through a period where i was a single father i had two kids at home and i was the only adult in the house so my life would be my life was just full on and actually it trained me out of overthinking things too much because mm-hmm. i had to i had to take spontaneous correct action to look after two small beings. And I didn't feel particularly prepared. So, just a very simple example, you know, I, I would pick up the kids, you know, we from school, we'd go shopping, because I, I, it was an important principle for me that we cooked everything from raw ingredients.
2: Can I try to jump in a little bit to say, we could skip the metaphysics and the ethics and talk about how those triangulate meaningfulness to life?
1: Well, I, this is just what I wanted to get to quickly, is yeah. that, and I'll say it quick, is when you have a really important decision to make that affects the well-being of people you love. Yes. You don't go through an ethical or a metaphysical process, you just know because of the urgency and the importance. And I'm just wondering if when we contemplate the state of the planet mm-hmm. and how few people actually even care mm-hmm. or appear to, and how few people seem to be willing to put their own needs aside to make a difference, I'm wondering if I'm wondering if this really is Entirely, it is partially, I'm wondering if it's entirely an ethical and metaphysical question And if there's also, if there's something about the urgency that transcends those, that's my question
2: This is actually a very powerful question and a very important one um, But there's a lot of different aspects of it that I'll need to disentangle mm-hmm. So on one hand, yes, you're correct there's a, there's a degree to which if we get too involved in the thinking about things we get too involved in the modeling of it um, we're not responsive enough to the situation, and so that's why I was jump, trying to jump in and say, well, you know, I could look at the metaphysics and really get to the deepest nature of what meaningfulness is, or I could look at the ethics and get to the deepest nature of what goodness is. But what those do is those create clarity around the idea that meaningfulness is connected to life, mm. and when you see your child walking into the street, you know that, mm. right? You, you don't have to uh, figure it out from scratch. You have in that particular moment the uh, embodied knowledge, mm-hmm. right? The same way we're talking about the generative creative process coming from a, a deep field of embodied knowledge of music in the case of George Harrison. But in this particular case, the deep embodied knowledge at a biological level that is um, impulsive to correct action. And so in effect, you know, there's, there, there is a, a truth to that. Um, And I don't wanna diminish that at all. I wanna take that and I wanna hold that as basically saying, okay, this is one really, really important aspect of what we need to be thinking about, or even doing, right? And then on the other side, we have this sort of recognition that um, there's this thing called the action bias, where sometimes we respond too soon to really be able to pick out the right choice Mm -hmm. rather than just the first available choice. Mm -hmm. And so in effect, part of the thing that got us to where we are today is that there is a um, there's a propensity on our part from a, from a very good reason for a very good biological basis that encourages us to take the first answer mm-hmm. the first answer that that seems to sort of satisfy the criteria and it's a and the satisfying answer is essentially good enough for most cir- circumstances so i can use heuristics rather than doing the actual laborious thinking out process we can use it through heuristics and effectively apply that and get get a good enough answer like I don't need to get my kid out of the street in any specific way. I just need him out of the street,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? Um, but when we're looking at, you know, situations that are involving existential risk, where uh, due to lack of preparation, um, so for instance, uh, maybe there is a, a, a solar uh, corona discharge and it causes an electromagnetic storm that knocks out the power grid. Now... That's actually a preventable thing because there's things that we can do to the power grid to make it uh, less uh, susceptible to those kinds of effects. But that would require advanced preparation. That would require something that was thinking in terms of what is the best way to do this, not just what is the first way to get it done, right? We, we put the power grid up the most uh, inexpensive way possible, but we haven't made it robust, so we end up having to do it more than once. Um, so in effect, what's, what's, what's happening is is that When we're thinking about design, you know, like to create a car, we have to think about it in terms of what are actual good answers. Because if you have a million people using that automobile, which is very likely in in today's manufacturing world, if something goes wrong, with even one out of a million probability, it's going to happen. Very likely, right? Mm -hmm. So as, 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 as. Thoughtful people thinking about the future of the world, thinking about seventh generation effects or what is humanity going to be like a thousand years from now or what is going to be actually um, sustainable evolution, right? Um, We need to bring a level of consciousness to that question that is uh, considerably in excess to just what is possible with feeling or just what is possible with feeling, right? Direct immediate response. And we actually need to come into a perspective those that... Are
1: the two are the same. You said just in response, just... What was the difference between those two?
2: Thinking things out yeah. in a purely intellectual way yeah. versus responding from a purely into, um, intuitive or instinctual way.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd like... Yeah, you keep going. I've got, I want to throw in another, another possibility just based on the research I've done. But.
2: Well, maybe you've come to the same conclusion. To me, the, um, it's not that you, you can't have uh, adequacy doing either just those you have to do something which essentially includes and transcends them Mm -hmm. you need to bring both of those aspects in if you if you just operate from an instinctual perspective you're not thinking about the future you're not aware of the future in a way that you can respond to it Mm -hmm. but if you're just preparing for the future and you're ignoring the present Mm -hmm. you're not responding very effectively to present circumstances either Mm -hmm. and so in effect in order for us to have generative consciousness, we need to do something which is responsive to time and possibility as well as to things that are remote in space.
0: As you're listening to this conversation with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might feel inspired to go deeper into your own expression of radical brilliance. Come join us for a one-week Radical Brilliance Laboratory held in a beautiful, rural location in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. During the laboratory, you'll have an opportunity to dive deeply into all four quadrants of the Brilliance Cycle. This means you'll be able to explore experiences of consciousness without boundaries. And you'll be able to start accessing original impulses of creativity from within yourself that can become your unique contribution to the world. You can get in touch with your own learning and integrate mistakes that will allow you to mature and grow. You'll have the chance to deeply mine your own resources as well as connect with other brilliant people in a small, intimate context for a week. You can check out the Radical Brilliance Laboratories at RadicalBrilliance.com under the Events tab.
1: Let me run something by you. Uh In order to write Radical Brilliance, I did four hundred and twenty interviews, and by now I've added more. So it's like, you know, by now I'm more, I'm past four fifty, right? And I've been interviewing people like you, who, who, what do you call it? First principle? Who, who, who,
2: Think in terms of principles. Yeah, principle, first principle thinking. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Who, who are not imitative? Mm -hmm. So I look for musicians and. CEOs and, and, and inventors who are not imitating but who have found this way to connect so I, you know, I ask people as openly as I can you know, what, what, what do you experience subjectively you know, so I ask people about this relationship between logically thinking things through and instinct but what I hear reported on statistically more than anything else is actually more in the transcend than include, you said include and transcend mm-hmm. and the transcend the way that I hear that expressed is sometimes in a within a metaphysical sort of framework but more often not in a metaphysical physical framework the sense of receiving something from beyond your mind so um, well okay one way we could say this is is you've probably seen in uh, in if you've been to, um, to Florence and seen the, the half-finished statues in the academica these are statues of michelangelo they're actually called the slaves no one i'm not quite sure if they were intended to be this way or if he just didn't finish them but they're basically half-finished statues beautiful statues where you know a leg is sticking out of the, the big block of marble so michelangelo would get this huge block of marble i mean maybe four feet by four feet by 12 feet you know and he would start chipping away and so you can see these statues half finished where a leg is sticking out, an arm sticking out. The bit that's sticking out is perfect, mm. but they're, they're, they're half in the marble and half not. I can show you pictures of these. And so he, he's famously quoted of having said, when the block of marble arrives, the statue, for example, of David, is already perfectly there. I don't have to add anything. I just have to remove the unnecessary superfluous marble and the statues what's left, you know, which is an amazing way of looking at it. So what he's saying is, I didn't create the statue. I just removed the superfluous marble. Right? Mm-hmm. So we could actually take that same kind of thinking. And so I've, you know, I've written a novel, and I've interviewed a lot of novelists. And no- novelists most often say, it's really like the story has already been written, but it's in another dimension. I just have to pull it down because that's the subjective experience you know that i the novel that i wrote i'm writing another one another one now but i would the one novel i wrote which had no connection to anything autobiographical particularly i would just go for walks and i would be walking along the path and i would say and you know it was written in the first person i stepped out of the out of the the building and i and i turned the corner and 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 i bumped into and i didn't know what was what it was going to be i would find out you know so now we can start to apply this way of thinking or this way of, of recognizing to you know to we've just done it with with sculpture we could put, apply it to novels but we can also apply it to technology to mathematics uh, you know it's how albert einstein describes the moment when he recognized the general theory of relativity he was laying in the bathtub and it just revealed itself to him so this what we're looking at now and this is actually why i find waking up early in the morning and sitting so important Because you put yourself into a disposition where you can receive things, and of course it begs the question: Where are you receiving from? You know, and and people try to come up with theological answers to that question. It seems not sure interesting to not to not know where it's coming from. But this is in the category of transcend rather than include, because you're not really accessing cognitive thought. You're not really accessing kind of human level instincts or emotions. You're actually just receiving something, but it requires a trust. That there's something bigger than the human mind. There's something bigger than the than human emotions which we can tap into. What are your thoughts about that way of seeing it?
2: Well, I agree with a lot of the things that you're describing. I mean, I might just be adding details in terms of mm. how I, what language I use. So, for instance, uh, one of the questions that I spent a little time with was, um, "Are we creating something, or are we discovering it?" Mm. And so, you know, in one sense, you're saying, you know, we're pulling this down from another dimension. Uh, whereas earlier we were talking about how the generative capacity uh, can be facilitated, right? So, uh, if I um, develop a, a capacity to be still, if I if I really have developed the skillfulness of being able to play a guitar, for example, or to really uh, work with other musicians to listen what they're doing, or to uh, be sensitive to the environment, um, you know what the social sphere is 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 really needing for that particular moment. Um, you know, and, and, and all of these things are essentially different uh, aspects of the same uh, underlying constellation of ideas. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I sort of uh, felt was uh, part, of, part of the way that became part of how I think about this was that at a certain level, the difference between finding something and creating it uh, gets uh, rubbed out.
1: Okay.
2: So in other words, to, to think about finding something versus to think about creating it depends upon a certain notion of identity.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And as a result of the way in which this, this, uh, this, this, this orientation of thinking was, was um, and, and, and even to, to, to I, I can't speak about it without already making these assumptions, revealed itself to me, mm-hmm. right? That would have already been to have assumed a notion of identity and to say I was discovering rather than creating. Whereas in another sense, I could basically go in and start talking about, well, how um, however the download is happening, right, if we, if we use the uh, dis- discovered aspect, but then the uh, way in which that manifests itself is, in a sense, through the matrix of my own life, mm-hmm. through the matrix of my own skills, um, then in effect, uh, it becomes, uh, you know, part of the signature of my being, in a sense, becomes part of the art. Yeah. And so in effect, I, I want to become as clear a vessel as possible.
1: Yes. Right? Yeah.
2: So, you know, this goes back to the notion of stillness, goes back to the notion of skillfulness. Um, but at, at a certain level, when we start asking, well, where does it come from? Or where does the, uh, you know, if, if we're going to look at it as a, a taken from elsewhere, um, as soon as we try to make intelligible sense of those notions, uh, it, 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 it collapses. We don't, have, we don't have the tool set that we would need to be able to create a coherent notion of what that elsewhere even means. So now we're back into the sort of created aspect of looking at things. It's something about the total hologram of my being, um, through the imminent nature of it, through whatever was part of the of the generative matrix of all of life that that, that is in this moment, um, as manifested in, in 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 this particular way, created the conditions by which this emerged as a as an intelligible creation, um, and that and that because we have, uh, you know, we all have similar organic beings. Um, you know, when 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 somebody discovers something. Or, or create something, and someone else creates something. That there's something that's discovered to be the same in those creations, because the generative matrix out of which they came no, is that's the same. Happened a lot. Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. So we talk about this sort of convergent evolution, or this convergent emergent of ideas. You know, uh, calculus being invented yeah. by two different people, yeah. uh, roughly contemporaneous with one another, have the no, Ru- no The
1: Rubik's cube, believe it or not, was invented by two different people. Oh, fabulous! Eighty different parts of the world.
2: So you know, this notion of an emergence is 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 something which we can account for in multiple ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, either by this sort of generative holographic matrix of being, um, or by some sort of drawdown from elsewhere. Yeah. But one of the things, like I said, is is that if you if if you take a, a a very particular perspective, there's a way of thinking about it such that the notion of find versus create, to discover something versus create something, can't be distinguished.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and and what that basically means is is that we're actually talking about transcendence of identity.
1: Yeah,
2: there you go.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah. So it means you're, it means actually it, the way the language I would use is, you are allowing yourself to merge with the dimension of yourself that is universal. So you yeah. you're you're merging with what you would otherwise be connecting. There's
2: to. there's a, there's a clarity of the process that allows the light to come out. Yeah. So on one hand we can say the light's already there, and mm-hmm. on another hand we can say the light's created by whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. But either way the fact is is that there is light mm-hmm. and that clarity is therefore somehow necessary for the light to emerge
3: mm.
2: um, and and so if we're looking for this sort of metaphoric process uh, one of them is is, is 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 very much on the order of okay well what are the conditions to create transparency what are the conditions that create clarity mm. and 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 those are the kinds of things where we start exploring you know what skillfulness um, you know like I I do notice a correlation between um, how richly I've encountered a problem and the quality of the solutions that I through whatever process either create or manifest or, or, or discover mm. so um, in effect there's a there's a need to learn the language of the problem
3: mm-hmm.
2: to be able to hold on to the language of the solution
3: yeah
2: to hold on to the expression of the solution within the language of the problem yeah so in effect there's a um, there's an honesty in the encounter, yeah. as part of the generative process. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I get your yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, w- w- what I think I'm hearing you say is, in order, f- in order to be a vehicle or a vessel to download, you've got to, you've got to actually upgrade your. Yeah. skills to be a suitable vessel.
2: You ha- you have to encounter it with your being, your yeah. true being. Yeah. And you have to work on your true being in order to be able to have the encounter.
1: But you also require certain skills. I mean for example, Albert Einstein he recognized the general theory of relativity in a very innocent state, laying in the bathtub. But he'd but, worked
2: for years you know, exactly. to create the condition but that in, he could have that recognition. Exactly. Yeah.
1: But in order to be a suitable vehicle, he'd been through a lot of preparation. That's exactly
2: right. right. And that's what I'm talking about, transformation of self. Yeah. Because in effect, to become a suitable vehicle, you have to do work.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, and so in effect, by by becoming the vehicle that can receive the answer, we we have those moments of glory. We can't force them to happen. We can't... Yeah. Uh, make it the result of a causal process but we can in effect uh, create the nurturing conditions that make it more likely for those things to occur
1: exactly and that and actually you know um, this is the spectrum we were talking about that maybe at previous times in history that was a kind of a you know, a noble and unusual disposition to take. Today, it's almost like a moral imperative. It's, it is, you know, it's, yeah. It, I mean, it, faced with what we have today, we need all hands on deck. Pretty much. It, it, it would, I think more than anything today, what's needed is a transformation of values where contribution is the ultimate call. You know, we're, we're dedicating your yeah. life to the service of future generations. It's the ultimate call thing to do. And a life of acquisition is just kind of like, kind of lame.
2: Yeah. Well, this this is uh, part of the part of the processes. So, in effect, you, you, you So, first of all, I agree with you,
3: mm.
2: but then I I notice mm. as as soon as I say that, if I have you know a bunch of people that are contributing to the future, and then I have one or two people that are um, you know really good at figuring out how to extract value. Mm. They're gonna take the value from the future and essentially make it their own personal benefit in the present, Yeah. privatizing the, the value, so to speak. Yeah. So I'm a little hesitant to try to tell people to um, just go into a perspective where they are uh, wanting to contribute mm. because I don't want them to be taken advantage by those few that decide exactly. that they're going to defect. Yeah. So in a, in, in, a, in a larger way, what we end up therefore thinking about is well, it's How do not we?
1: just a few. It's the, right now, it's the majority. Right
2: now, it's the majority, yeah. but it'll never be none. Yeah. Okay? There'll always be some. Yeah. Right? So, in effect, we have to create a kind of anti-fragile environment yeah. within which contributions can actually benefit future generations or the planet or, or the larger commons in a way that um, is, 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 is not fragile to uh, you know, specific minorities— or majorities, from uh, essentially uh, abstracting that value, accumulating it, and essentially displacing the value from the future. Yeah. So um, in, a, in, a, in a way, that the, the problem therefore becomes one of governance.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: How do we make good choices collectively? Mm-hmm. Um, which then becomes the context of how do we make good choices individually? Um, we normally think of it as how do we make good choices individually? Like I start with sovereignty, and out of sovereignty I create a nation. But... One of the things that, that, that has been kind of a, a real exploration here is um, what if we were to start thinking about it in the opposite direction? How do we make good choices as communities and then use those good choices at a community level to enable individuals to be healthier,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? I think we need both approaches. I don't mm-hmm. think that it's just possible to start with a um, healthy human and create a healthy society without thinking about how a healthy society is also supporting the creation of a healthy human.
1: Well, and coming back, you know, you talked about there's a place where you just talked about a place where discovering and creating merge mm-hmm. There's probably equally a place where my needs and our needs merge, mm-hmm. where you Yeah, I mean, that, that
2: I completely agree. And that's yeah. how we get to theory of ethics mm-hmm. and how can we use theory of ethics to make that point something that is not just a hypothesis, but actually a subject of proof. Beautiful. Right, yeah. and and that becomes now a way of of taking the intuition and the intellect and showing that they arrive at the same place. Exactly. Um, but there's a level of confidence that you get so what you from just, that.
1: What you just said there, actually, is, it, as I understand it, is you can use ethics and metaphysics to reassure yourself that your gut knowing is right
2: oh yeah and yeah. it's really powerful when that happens because yeah. the thing is is that you know you can you can have an intuition and you can have had all the experiences of intuition in your life but to make it actionable yeah I either have to have had had all those experiences but then I can't learn anything from anybody else yeah. or I can learn from other people but then I don't have you know the connection with myself in order to do that right, right. and in effect one of the great superpowers of the human species is, is that we can learn from one another.
1: Which is what we're doing right now. We're having a conversation where there's no teacher and student. Exactly. Yeah, we're, 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 we're learning from each other. And in the discovery of shared understanding, which we might have come to from two completely different backgrounds, in the mutual discovery of shared understanding, we can relax and go, ah, so... Yeah. Well, that that's that the it.
2: shared intuition part of it. Yeah. But we can also do the shared thinking part of it. So I can say, okay, here's how I figured this part out of it. Does this make sense to you? Or did you find some way that maybe this logic doesn't quite work, mm-hmm. right? Or um, if if we're both standing side by side and we're looking at it and says, yeah, that makes complete sense, then we got the capacity to think through it clearly and from our experiences to feel through it clearly. Yeah. If we have both clear feeling and clear thinking, then that feels Pretty actionable. I mean, I Beautiful. I don't know what else would be better, to
1: yeah, be Yeah, well, that's, you know, in, the, in Radical Brilliance, we talk about brilliant friendships mm-hmm. and how a friendship can actually become a powerful catalyst for amplifying and actionalizing your gift.
2: Because we can see through each other's perspective. Yeah. So there's a kind of phase parallax that occurs yeah. to the degree to which I can synthesize my position with your position and see from both places at once. Yes. Then a... Added dimension emerges, right? If I take which t- is the we, which is the we, but mm. the the added dimension is an insight,
3: mm.
2: right? So I have two eyeballs, mm. two physical organs of vision, mm. and each of them sees from a different position, mm-hmm. and it's two mm-hmm. two dimensional fields of information being received by the brain yeah. that is resolved into a single. Mm-hmm. Two dimension with a third imputed dimension.
1: Right, and it's actually only because of having two eyeballs that can do that that allows us to perceive depth of... depth.
2: Yeah, there's a lot more cues than just the parallax. Mm -hmm. Um, We notice shadows, Mm -hmm. Uh, we notice haze, Uh, we notice different focal depths or our lenses, you know, having, okay, that is a cue. So when we go into a movie theater and we're looking at a 3D movie, It can be a little disorienting because we're getting one set of cues, but it isn't matching the other ones. Mm -hmm. Um, So in effect, there's a holistic aspect of multiple sensory channels that from each of the different capacities that those channels have add more and more richness, more and more confidence to what the phase parallax is doing. So not only do we have the insight, but we have the insight not just from a geometric perspective. But the insight from a uh, multiple channels of sensation perspective, there's a there's a feeling component through the through the irises. There's a feeling component through the brightness. There's all there's all sorts of aspects which, in the gestalt of the sensory information, provides us with a very high level of confidence as to precisely how far we need to reach in order to touch something.
1: Beautiful.
2: And we get the answer automatically, just in our biology.
1: I think on this on this note of uh, of the analogy of parallax vision to parallax friends yeah. I think it's a good good moment to wrap this this phase of the conversation up and okay Thank you so much. I've yeah. really, that's been really uh, a, a very rich rich mm-hmm. meeting thank you okay. So that was Forrest Landry. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. We have another Forrest Landry podcast coming up soon, so stay tuned for that. There were a couple of things that, um, that we talked about in that podcast that I thought you might like to consider. The first one was, what is the disposition that most allows for brilliance? And Forrest and I talked in the, in the conversation about sleep. How much do you sleep? What time do you go to bed? Like that. But it'd be interesting to consider what are the... What are the factors which allow for you to be brilliant? And you might like to take some notes, do some journaling or talk to a friend about what are the what are the factors that really influence you to be brilliant. Another thing we spoke about in this podcast was the question of who do you serve? Who are you in service to? And um, we we come up with different perspectives. You could be in service to fame. You could be in service to wanting recognition. You could be in service to money. Your actions, your perspective, your, your offering, what, what God do you serve? What, what, what idol is on your altar to whom you dedicate your actions? These are two powerful questions for today, and I look forward to uh, welcome you to the next podcast next week.